While the children um, go to their program, I'd like you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Or open your device. Okay, Romans chapter 8, and we'll be reading from verses 28 to 39. Okay, it's entitled More Than Conquerors. Romans 8, 28 to 39. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What, then, shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will, he all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died more more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardships or persecution or famine, nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written? For your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. May our hearts be open to hear what God wants to say. morning everyone. <laughs> I'm Pastor Brennan. I'm delighted to be bringing the word today um, and there's so much to talk about in this. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to get into it. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've chosen to communicate with us, Lord, because we couldn't reach out to you until you reached out to us first. And we ask, Lord, that you open our hearts to what you have to say today and open up your word to our hearts. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So this is the third week in the series we're going through right now. Uh, two weeks ago, we talked about how God made you. Um, he made each of us. He gave us an identity that can ultimately only be found and validated in him. And Daryl talked last week about how God has also gifted us. Not only does God make us for a purpose, he equips us both with talents that we develop over time and then spiritual gifts that are given to us when we are born again. God equips us for the tasks he sets us about. And this week we're talking about how God calls you. 
And he calls each of us to a particular destiny to the use of those gifts and talents he's given us to grow into the person that he's made us to be. And the passage we just heard is a picture of that calling. God foreknows and he predestines and he calls us. Uh, He draws us to him for a purpose. He justifies, he makes us clean from sin through the work of Jesus on the cross so we can be his servant. Um, He also glorifies, he makes us complete in that final day. And it's because of God's individually precise and and, uh, personal love for us that we can be assured that he's going to hold up his end of the bargain. If he calls us to step out in faith, then we know that he will be there for us. He will go before us. If we suffer in the pursuit of his will, we know that suffering will amount to something greater than that suffering. It may improve us. It may be a part of someone's testimony later on about what they witnessed in your life that drew them to faith. And often we don't know why that suffering is part of God's will. But if he's willing to send Jesus to the cross to save us, we know he's willing to work through the suffering in our lives as well. And there is nothing, life, death, angels, demons, that can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. That's a promise from God for us to carry forth in our own lives into whatever challenge we are given. That's a call to a calling. It's a call to adventure. And now here's the tricky thing about our call from God to do his will. There are things we are all called to do in our lives, spread the gospel, become more Christ-like, turn from sin, join a fellowship of believers. This is sort of a common call that each of us has. But usually when people ask, what is God calling me to do? What's the call on my life? They mean, what is God specifically calling me to do that he's not calling everyone else to do? And that's not an easy question to answer because some people are called to do amazing, incredible things. So Billy Graham, you know, uh, you probably know, passed away this week, 99 years old after a life spent preaching to stadiums full of people and um, being the, the tool that God chose to call waves of people to the cross. Um, and being part of this incredible work of God in the world, which is basically the most amazing movement towards God since the Great Awakening. That's a powerful calling. But if Billy Graham had instead merely been a, a single parent with a, with a sick child and a dysfunctional family structure and a history of addiction and a limited support network of believers, then just keeping his head above water and acting honorably in that struggle would have been a heroic effort, would have been a, a calling worth his pursuit and worth some praise of. The circumstances you are in are not a limitation to what God can do in your life, but God expects you to pursue his will inside your limitations. We're called to faithfully follow God regardless of what limitations are placed in our life. And faithfully following God's call may look very different in one person's life to another. The rules will never change. It's never going to be sin for one person and not for another and that sort of dramatic difference. But what we're called individually to act to do in the world may be different. That's why it's important not to rashly judge. But we can talk about what is common across all callings the kinds of trials that we need to overcome, the types of steps we need to take when we are uh, moving through that journey, that calling from God, and what they might specifically look like in your context. And so I thought there's about a hundred ways to approach the idea of the calling God puts in our life, and I thought I'd use the one that I found most helpful and powerful. And that's going to depend on whether or not this device works for me. And it does. So back in 1949, a fellow called Joseph Campbell wrote a book called The Hero of a Thousand Faces. 
Um, he was a mythologist, which means he studies myths and folktales and comparative cultures. And his proposition was that all of these stories seem to have a particular structure to them, that he called that the hero's journey. And this is true in our culture as well. Most of our stories, our books, our movies, they conform to a similar pattern. And that pattern connects with something true in people. For some reason, we have stories that we think are good and stories that we think are bad. People go to see the good ones and they give up on the bad ones. There's something true there that our heart is seeking. There's something about the way that we write heroes and heroines and stories and the way they go through trials and overcome that that reflects something in our life about our calling. So the best fictional stories, for example, they go through this journey and the best biographies go through this journey and so much of the narrative of the characters in scripture go through these journeys and that's why the characters seem so vibrant and alive in scripture because despite the fact that they are 2,000 years removed from us in a very different culture, they go about muddling through life and trying to overcome the problems they encounter in exactly the same way that we would. And so I found this hero's journey idea very helpful in my understanding of the idea of a call from God. Um, and so we're going to use these, these 12 steps, just as an example to help break down an understanding of what a call is like in our life. Now, as you can see in this graphic, I hope you can read that, um, the hero's journey is sort of divided in the ordinary world and the special world. Something is, begins in the ordinary world, that is where life starts and the call to adventure draws someone into a new world, one they don't know as well, one they have to learn and adapt in, face struggles in, and then eventually to return to the ordinary world. After that, they must overcome what they face. They return to the ordinary world having gained something or having grown. They face a challenge and then they and their ordinary world are better for having faced that challenge. A knight leaves his safe castle for the danger of the road, finds and battles a dragon, rescues a princess, returns to the kingdom where they are married. Standard format. A dermatologist leaves her safe job in Australia for the hazards of medical mission work, plays her part in saving lives and souls, and returns home after many years with a wisdom and a testimony to bless her home church. A reluctant prophet tries to escape his duty, but ends up swallowed by a whale before confronting his calling, delivering God's warning to a foreign nation, and finally withdraws in solitude First, with a, a God-given wisdom just to him that opens up his arrogant, narrow view of the world. And finally becomes an example that blesses God's people for thousands of years in Scripture. In one form or another, there is always this journey. So, where in this journey are you? And as we go through these steps, I'm going to use a lot of examples. Some of these are examples from Scripture, some are from popular culture and literature. Please understand I am not saying that Scripture is like a fictional story. I'm saying that the reason that good stories are good is because they map onto reality. And Scripture is a record of truth. So there's commonality there we can see. Excuse me. <coughs> so the journey has striking similarities regardless. So the first step on this journey is the ordinary world. It's the ordinary world. It's the, the small but known, simple, pleasant place. Life is not painful, but it, it may even be a little bit painful, but it's certainly predictable. Luke Skywalker is a humble moisture farmer in a dusty, backward planet. Bilbo Baggins is a plump, comfortable hobbit in his safe little shire. This is the world that God calls us out of when he comes into our lives. That's why the decision to obey that call is so hard, because you have to leave your comfort zone to follow it. 
You have to leave what's comfortable and known to follow it. And so we can read, Jesus calls his disciples out of that world. When he finds them, they're just in their normal world. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon and Peter, and his brother Simon called Peter, um, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the sea for they were, into the lake, for they were fishermen. Matthew four eighteen. They had a normal life, a simple normal life, and they were demanded to leave that life. Now, when Jesus came to them, he didn't decide he was going to join their life. He didn't become a fisherman and then over the period of 40 years lightly season their conversation on the sea, on the Sea of Galilee with a wisdom that very gradually transformed them. He required a demonstration of willingness to leave the world they knew behind. Because obviously if you're not fulfilling your call in the life you have as it stands, you're going to have to go outside that and change something. Go where it's uncomfortable. You're going to have to give up that comfort and certainty. So then comes the call to adventure. The opportunity to leave that ordinary world and confront something less comfortable. That opportunity presents itself. Sometimes it's a subtle invitation, a promotion that gives you more travel opportunity at work, an unexpected pregnancy well after a couple thought they were done having kids. In stories, it tends to be way more dramatic. Prince John takes power and begins to abuse the throne, prompting Robin Hood to take action. A detective has their case shut down by a higher-up and makes them wonder just how high this corruption goes. In Scripture, the call is often very explicit. So it was for Abraham. The Lord had said to Abram, Go up from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. So it was for Abram. God said to him very directly, Get up and go. You're an 80-year-old man living on your dad's couch. It's time for you to go in the dangerous unknown into a world full of marauding tribes and petty kings. It's not going to be easy, but there is a land I will show you, and I will be your God. That's the call to adventure. And since the primary characters in Scripture are people God usually speaks to directly, their call is often out loud in direct terms. This happens to Samuel, happens to Moses, happens to Noah. But not always. Esther's call to adventure happens when the, the queen of Persia is deposed, and then the king's matchmakers haul in all the good-looking girls for potential replacements. She gets swept into it whether she wants it or not. She goes from being a Jewish peasant into the unknown world of foreign royal politics and power without God saying a word to her. And the call in your life might be a word in your heart, or it might be a catastrophic changing of your world that you have no power over. Or an opportunity that pops into your life that you might just be able to take. And when that happens, the most common response is to refuse that call. A young Peter Parker refuses to use his spider powers for the good of the city and pretends he can live his life just as he wants to. The Lion King Simba flees into the jungle after his father's death instead of confronting the disaster and becoming king himself. And famously, Moses meets God on the mountain, receives God's word for Pharaoh, and the miracles to validate that word is told about his destiny to lead the slaves out into freedom and into the promised land. But Moses said, pardon your servant, Lord, please send someone else. And if we are honest, we all spend way too much time there in that step. This is when we know the opportunity is there to do more. If we can only find the courage 
to step up and get out of our comfort zone, to go on that short-term mission, to enroll in that diploma of biblical studies we know we have the time for now. But it means risk. It means exposing our nice little ordered life to some chaos, and it's painful. I ran from my call to ministry for about 10 years. Sometimes you can refuse the call for quite some time. In some cases, God will tolerate that. There are saints who we'll see in heaven who have gone their entire adult lives before meeting God only when the specter of death of old age means they can't run anymore. But sometimes refusing the call is so destructive. This almost destroys Moses. God almost wipes him off the earth for refusing this call that God has given him so generously and so abundantly. He's saved by extraordinary mercy at the last minute. But the choice is for the hero either to, to wither away, never becoming what they were meant to be, never fulfilling their destiny, never embracing the thing that God has called them to do, or plucking up the courage and confronting that call head on. And so what do you need when you're going to go somewhere you've never gone? You need someone who knows the way. Bilbo needs a Gandalf. Luke needs an Obi-Wan. The disciples had the Lord himself. Even Paul, explicitly, encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus. Famously gets knocked flat on his back. He says, who are you, Lord? Saul asks. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Now, Paul ends up spending three years in Arabia learning either from visions of the resurrected Lord or at least in prayer and study. It's not clear in Scripture. He wasn't ready to do what he was called to do, though. And he couldn't be until he had learned a little something of what he needed to do. And when we come to be saved and we're born again, we receive the Holy Spirit, who is our constant companion and our guide and our mentor. And the Holy Spirit is sufficient to teach us anything we need to know, but our God delights in using his people. And so it's not unheard of for a follower of Jesus to, to grow dramatically in their walk just by studying on their own, studying the word in their own time in secrecy and praying. But in almost any testimony of any great call put on someone's life, there is a mentor who appears just in time to help that person face the calling they're given. To equip them, to, to give them some wisdom, to give them support they need. And now you can't fulfill your calling by sitting and learning forever. At some point, you need to take the step that means you are fully invested in this journey out of the ordinary world into the special one, out of a comfortable life and into the challenge God has placed before you. Once you've taken that step, it can't be taken back. Then you have really begun your journey. It's exhilarating and it's frightening. It's your wedding day. It's the day you put a deposit on a house in another country after you've sold the one you've lived in for 14 years. This is a picture from The Hobbit, a promotional picture, I guess, from The Hobbit, where Bilbo is finally plucking up the courage to leave his comfortable little hobbit home and to go on his adventure. The shot deliberately captures him with one foot inside, one foot outside, crossing the threshold, out of the ordinary world into the world of adventure, come what may. And David crosses his threshold when he confronts Goliath. We see a little, little of David before that. He runs around. He asks some questions. He uh, proves himself to be a provocative young chap. But up until this point, he might have run away. 
Then David took his staff in his hand. He chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with a sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. The point at which he approaches the enemy with a weapon in his hand, he's in. There is no turning away from that. This is the moment that you stop thinking about doing something outside your comfort zone and you start to do it. And what comes next is difficult. Now you're invested in the journey, you are walking the first stumbling meters, often filled with trial and pain. People in your life, will, your life will react to the decisions you are making. If you come to follow Christ when you've grown up in the church, that's one thing. If you come to follow Christ when you haven't grown up in the church, this often means you lose a bunch of friends. Sometimes you may lose some family. But you make new friends, you meet fellow travelers, you gain skills to adapt to this new world. This is the sixth step with tests and allies and enemies. You'll be opposed by the devil, by your flesh, by the world. In any Western movie, this is where the hero begins putting together his band of compadres. The shifty gunslinger that you didn't trust earlier turns out to be trustworthy. The federal marshal turns out to be corrupt. You learn about weaknesses you didn't know you had and about strengths you never thought you'd master. And Paul goes through incredible suffering and trials and gets betrayed and makes new allies all on the road of his grand journey. He says that he's worked much harder, he's been in prison more frequently, he's been flogged more severely and been exposed to death again and again. And when you step into the unknown territory that God is calling you into, you will probably suffer. It's part of the process of making you into the person that you are made to be. Now this picture is from a, a Navy SEAL training exercise. That log starts at about 100 kilos. That's not terribly bad between six guys, but then they have to run up the sand dunes with this log. Then they have to drop it and pick it up again. Some of the guys are shorter than others, so they're carrying less weight. They carry it into the surf till it's soaking wet, and then they have to drag it out again and back up the dunes until everyone is aching and lifting together and angry because they feel like they're the only one lifting. But through it, they learn endurance and they work in concert. It's painful and it's frustrating, but the person they become on the other side is better than the one who went in. Then comes the approach to the innermost cave. In the story of King Arthur, the, the Knights of the Round Table uh, setting out to search for the Holy Grail, and the, each of the knights sets off for the quest, seeking the same thing, the Holy Grail, the, the most precious thing. But each sets off into the forest alone, and each enters the forest at the point that seems darkest to them. That's the idea of the innermost cave. It's the thing you most fear, it's the part of your journey you most need to overcome because it's the part of the journey you most want to avoid. For Peter, this approach was marked by Jesus' words. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Peter was enthusiastic and willing and competent, and that's why he sort of becomes the unofficial leader of the apostles, even through their story. But his weakness 
is that he's trying to do God's work in his own strength. And God's work constantly involves weights that no man has the strength to bear. And Jesus knows this. And he sets him up to be humbled and broken so that he can be built up on the other side of that challenge. And that challenge is the ordeal. It's when the worst fear from the innermost cave seems to be coming to life. Now, raising a child is a hero's journey for a parent. There are challenges and trials the whole way, but the ordeal, when they think they are most in dire straits, when they feel they are most in trouble, usually hits in the teenage years, and that's when the parents start asking, have I ruined them? Did I do something, or have I not done something, and because of that, I'm going to lose them? For soldiers and missionaries alike, it tends to hit about three months into their deployment away from their home. That's when they start to miss it the most. They miss their friends. They miss the language they grew up with being everywhere. They miss meat pies. And the task before them seems impossible. Job's story is pretty much all ordeal. Job loses everything. He says, I have sewed sackcloth over my skin and buried my brow in the dust. My face is red with weeping. Dark shadows ring my eyes, yet my hands have been free of violence and my prayer is pure. He loses everything. He hits rock bottom and only has a useless friends with no good advice and a wife who wants him to curse God and die. It's the worst. But he maintains integrity through it. See, our God is not in the business of giving people calls that involve only a little bit of struggle and then glorious success. We have a God who is in the business of accomplishing his will in the world just as he is accomplishing his will in you. And that means digging up things you might prefer buried. It means breaking badly healed bones so that they can be set right. And if you want a God who is going to politely avoid your anxieties and limitations... You won't find him here. You will have to make him up. Because anything in your life that might make you try to turn from your call is a challenge to God's authority. It's the idolatry of fear and discomfort and misery. And if you would bow to those things instead of God, part of your journey is always going to involve a confrontation with that thing that lives in the innermost cave. That's the ordeal. But on the other side of the ordeal is the reward. It's in heroic tales that reward can be many things. We call this stage seizing the sword, but it could be anything, a magic sword, an elixir, the holy grail in a story. Sometimes it's a princess or a prince to marry. Typically the sword is a metaphor. When you face your fear and succeed, you're not a prisoner of it anymore. When David finishes his ordeal fleeing from vengeful King Saul, he is recognized as the anointed king of Israel. When you finish the gauntlet of exams in your last year of uni and you are holding your degree, you have your reward. Yes, that degree, but more than that, the knowledge that you had what it takes to suffer through at least 15 years of study. And that's what it takes to suffer through all that without quitting. That grows you as much as having the piece of paper ever could. In the book of Nehemiah, the Israelites return to their land 
And they live under constant threat of attack and destruction while they are rebuilding the city walls and the temple. Up until that point, it was touch and go. Would they just be another generation of Jews dead in the desert without the kingdom being restored? But they kept the faith and eventually they come out the other side. The Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priests, and the, teacher of the teachers of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people have been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Jerusalem was back and God's temple was rebuilt. They could worship God in their homeland again. And the shame that had led to that exile, which was revealed through the reading of the law, was so great but now it's time for them to celebrate. They've come through. And in your life, the periods of greatest rewards will always come after the greatest ordeals. God will put you through the fire so that you will come out tempered. And it is worth it every time. Then comes the road back. The journey back to the ordinary world, back to normal. This is the return from the special world to the ordinary world, and that might be literal or figurative. For a missionary, it might be coming home from a long and difficult stretch embedded in an unreached people group. It might be that the, the sight of their mission becomes so familiar to them that they start thinking of it like home. It doesn't pain them to be there anymore. It becomes their ordinary world, the one they're comfortable with and operating in. Instead of one full of frantic chaos and challenges, it becomes one they're happy to live in. The painful situation of many soldiers and prisoners alike is that they're in their battlefield or in incarceration for so long that it becomes their ordinary world. And then returning to civilian life is an entirely new ordeal for them. But in some sense, a return to normal must come. And in the story of Jacob... After Jacob has been away in a strange land and made his family and fortune despite the efforts of Laban to ruin him, God finally sends him back to his homeland. He must return. Even though returning means he'll have to confront his brother who swore to kill him next time they met. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives and I will make you prosper. It's time for him to settle down as the new patriarch of the Hebrews, and that means, one way or another, returning to normal. Now, the road back calls for a, a kind of a resurrection. This is typically a, physical, a, a figurative resurrection. It, it's the, the true coming to terms with what's changed now that the ordeal is over. In The Wizard of Oz, Dorothy is figuratively resurrected when she wakes up after learning that there is no place like home. She has a new appreciation for the people she loves. She says she'll never leave home again. She loves her provincial Kansas life more than before she left. Even if Oz only existed in her head, she is greater when she wakes up than when she began her adventure. In your call to lead your family, this might come after the troubled teenager years as you settle into a new rhythm of life with your adult children. In the career which God has led you to, this comes when you finally are able to let go of the doubts of your ability that you're not in the right place. And the instinct goes away, that instinct to flee back to a job that demands less responsibility of you. For Elijah, this comes after his greatest challenge. 
when Queen Jezebel has put a price on his head and he's tired of being the only voice in the world speaking for God and he flees in exhaustion and despair. Elijah came to a broom bush. He sat down under it and he prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. And so he rises. God revitalizes him, reminds him that God has, in fact, kept a faithful remnant. He's not alone. And, in fact, the voice of God won't die with Elijah, but it's time for him to anoint his successor. Challenges and callings from God are not to be treated like annoying deviations from the life we want. As if they're supposed to be overcome as quickly as possible or avoided when they can be. God grows us by calling us out. By calling us out of what we know into the unknown where we have to trust him and our faith grows stronger. James chapter 1 says this. says to consider it pure joy whenever we face trials of many kinds. Because the testing of our faith develops perseverance. Which must finish its work in us to make us mature and complete. And that completion is this resurrection. And finally, step 12. Return with the elixir or the sword or the thing that was gained through the ordeal. We talked about identity two weeks ago. How we can think of ourselves as individuals but also as defined by our relationships. You're not just you. You're also someone's brother or sister or best friend or mother. And because you are part of their world, this transformation in you is going to affect them. This is when the personal fruit of your calling becomes a benefit to your family and your kingdom. Now, this picture obviously is a soldier coming back from war. But he's not just back the same man than when he left. He's back a man who has proven himself ready to risk his life for what's right. In a broad sense, he's brought back a small portion of the freedom or security that represents his army's effort. In a more intimate sense, he brings back a renewed appreciation for the family he fought for. And they have a greater appreciation for him, having been away fighting until now. And Jesus, after he rises, isn't just proved to be the true king of creation or the son of God, as if that wasn't enough. But he's revealed in glory as our savior. And the people who have a relationship with him are transformed by that relationship. They become gospel messengers in the world, carrying the message of hope that Jesus won for them. Jesus came to them and he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. The journey on which God takes you won't just build you up to win a prize. That journey adds to the kingdom by building you up in it. That is the hero's journey. Now, there's some novelty in knowing that. At one level, it's just kind of interesting. Now, every time you read a book or see a movie, you'll go, ah, there's the hero refusing the call. And you'll feel clever knowing where the script is going there. But that's not what we're doing here. I talked about this because 
This understanding of a journey or a calling is useful. I found it super useful for me. It's useful for believers when they try to conceptualize what God's call on their life means. Too many people are looking for their calling, expecting it to be the thing they most enjoy or find fun. If it's the the thing that you're made to do, shouldn't you naturally fit it like hand to glove? God made a life. He calls you to live that life. You should settle into that groove more easily than anything else, but it just ain't so. Because you are broken and warped, and you're not the thing you were made to be. And each of us is like a rusted up, broken down machine and the gears are all crusted together and the belts are slack. It might have been made for a purpose, but in the state that you find it, the most natural thing for it to do is to sit there and do nothing. And that's exactly what you will do unless you are willing to call the repairman. And it won't just be a spritz of oil and ready to go. The last Christian delusion is that you're only a little bit broken. You are really broken. You're going to need parts ripped out and replaced. Occasionally you'll need a good kick to get started. But once the repairman is doing his work, you will get to do the thing you are made to do, which is not easy, but it is better than easy because it is meaningful. It has purpose. And that means we have to confront the difficulty that comes with the calling, the hurting and the stumbling and facing the worst parts of our soul with the conviction of God driving us and dragging out the dark thing that lurks in that innermost cave into the light where it can be defeated and you can steal its treasure. So what's your next step? Where are you in this journey? Because your life is both one long hero's journey, that's why biographies are so compelling. But also, it's a series of journeys strung together. The Christian ease term we use are seasons. I'm going into a different season in my life. Sometimes as Christians, we call them that. And coming to Christ for the first time from outside the kingdom is like this. You start out in the ordinary world, but Something seems off and eventually kind of unsatisfying. You ignore it for as long as you can. Eventually someone who loves you tells you about Jesus and the Spirit works in your heart and you cross the threshold. Yes, Lord, whatever it means to follow you, whatever it takes, I will do it. You're in, you're saved, but then come the tests. You meet a church family and you didn't think people that nice would exist. But old friends who don't understand the change in you don't like the change that's happened and there is pain and conflict and you probably lose some of them. Eventually this comes to a boiling point where you confront the decision that you've made. Do I really believe this? If it's going to be this hard, can I keep doing it? And if you decide yes, then you understand that it's harder, but it's better. And you get to carry that resolve with you great time to get baptized and you settle into your new life of faith and new creation aware of your newness now with a testimony of change to bring to the world but after that you'll receive a new season of life trials of many kinds as James calls them and if you try really hard and you plant your heels and muster all your strength you can probably stop growing as a Christian right then if you want 
Ordinary life, thank you, no more adventure. I am happy sitting right here. And if you're lucky, God will give you another warning before he starts kicking the legs out from your chair. You are not made to be an idle machine or a sitter-by or a bit character. You are a hero or a heroine in the call that God has placed on your life. So what's your next step? Ultimately, the Spirit will guide you in the specifics. But if you're not sure, don't let yourself off the hook. Where are you on your journey? Do you know you're supposed to be acting, but you are refusing to do so? Are you ready to act, but you need a mentor to give you some guidance? Are you neck deep in an ordeal that is just about killing you? And you need prayer and strength to get through to the other side. Are you settling down after the worst of your journey, folding those new lessons into yourself and preparing to share what you've gained with the kingdom? Wherever you are, look for what comes next and seek it with courage and honesty and integrity in your life. Stop refusing. Find your mentor. Face the darkness. Share what you've won. The pastor's here today, and your brothers and sisters in Christ would love to know where you are in your journey and to pray with you about your next step. And whatever your next step is, no matter how difficult, you have a church family and, more importantly, a Holy Spirit who will be with you every step of the way. Now let's pray. Father God, we thank you We thank you that you call us out of sin and darkness. Your son's death on the cross saves us and we are eternally grateful. Help us to show that gratitude by living our calling with a reflection of the courage and purpose that Jesus showed when he lived his. Show us the way you want us to go, Lord. Give us the people around us and the skills we need to take that step into the unknown. Be with us there through all the struggle and the pain we know must come. And reforge us as someone better, more Christ-like and more like who you made us to be on the road home from that adventure. Lord, our lives are in your hands and we submit to your will for them. And we pray as always in your son's precious name. Amen.